Well, good morning again. Everybody doing good? Are you doing good over here in this section? That's the first thing I want you to know. You're not doing okay? We had a... There we go. I appreciate that. Thank you. If you're online and you don't know what's going on, it's just better you stay that way, all right? We had a, a, a fun morning so far, agreed? Baptism being the best part, right, church? Take your Bible this morning and turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. I'm going to try to speak over the loud noise here of rain hitting the roof or not. There's a book I read about 30 years ago called The Applause of Heaven. We're just going to pretend that that's what that is for a second, okay? Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 11. We've been in the middle of a teaching series called The Gospel in Motion, and we're studying the book of Acts. And during this time, we're taking every part of what this early church was all about and trying to apply ourselves, apply our church to what the scripture is calling us to do. And so this morning, we're going to be dealing with a topic that this early church dealt with um, that is near and dear to what you and I deal with as believers in the culture that we're consistently in. You've heard the phrase, there's nothing new under the sun, right? There isn't. There's nothing new that you and I deal with that, that people didn't deal with a thousand years ago. Of course, we have the internet. Of course, we have things like, that are really cool, like air conditioning. Those are great, right, people? But here's the thing. When it comes to an emotional, when it comes to the psychological things, there is nothing new under the sun. The struggles that we're dealing with are the struggles at a deeper level that people dealt with thousands of years ago. And this is just as true today as it was about that first church. Now, I think this is a relevant way to start considering what we dealt with in our own sanctuary this morning. When I was in college, I took a camping class. Yes, I took a camping class or backpacking. Have you ever heard of the phrase, I went to school and took underwater basket weaving? Have y'all heard that before? This was pretty consistent with that. I needed to make an A to not only get out of school, but also to make my mom happy. So I decided to take this very difficult class called backpacking. And the final exam was for us to go to Cumberland Island, Georgia. Any of y'all ever been there before? National Seashore and camp out for the night and come back. That was the exam. So basically, if you died, you failed. Does that make sense? So we go there. And I'm partnered with this guy. I can't remember his name. We got our backpacks on. We're hiking back into the wilderness. And it is kind of wilderness there on Cumberland Island. It's the largest barrier island in the state of Georgia. It's about 12 or 15 miles long, about five miles wide. There's wild horses there. There's alligators there. There's all kinds of things that could get you. And so we finally get, after hiking five miles back on this island, we finally get to where we're going to camp out. And even though it is an island... There is a hill there. It was a small hill, but there was a hill there. And our objective, our first assignment, was to find a flat place to sleep. Because if any of you guys like to camp out or anything like that or done that before, you don't want to sleep on an incline. Agreed? Well, we thought what was a flat place to sleep, and me and my partner, we set up our tent, we cooked our meals, we did all that stuff, we ate, we were there. And about halfway through the night, I kind of felt myself moving. You know what I mean? And what? And some of you are like, what happened? Did a horse get you? No. What happened was, is that we actually had picked a site that was on an incline. 
And for the rest of the night, the nylon sleeping bag fabric and the bottom of the nylon tent hit each other and was like a slip and slide all night long. Any of y'all ever done something like that before that was that stupid or ridiculous? Listen, somebody like, no, I haven't. I'm smarter than you. I get you. I feel you. But all night long, I felt like I was having to hold on to the side of the tent because I felt like I was literally falling off the side of a mountain, even though I wasn't. I think that picture describes, if you know Jesus, what it is to live in our culture currently. Is we're hanging on for dear life to maintain our identity, to maintain who we are and whose we are. And many times, we don't hold on tight enough. Y'all been there before? Now, I'm not talking about choices that you make. That's a different subject. I'm talking about the reality that we live in. Things like cancel culture. Y'all have heard that before. Things like how to deal with a culture that is more adversely against your faith than ever before. Or at least we think so. But here's the deal. The early church dealt with the same issues. And how you and I respond to these things is important not only for the body of Christ and how we live out our lives and what the church is about, but also our personal testimony about who Jesus is. Because there's a couple of ways that we can respond to living in the culture that we live in as believers. One, we can get really angry. We're good at that, right? AKA Fox News. Y'all with me? I'm just throwing it out there. That's the way we are. We can get really angry about culture. We can get really defensive about culture. Y'all been there before? Have you ever had things thrust in your face in the sense that, hey, do this, do that, live in such a way, identify in such a way, that this is the way it needs to be and you're absolutely wrong, and your first knee-jerk reaction is to get mad and fight anybody or is it just me? We could respond that way. We could compromise, right? We can say, well, that's just the way it is. I can compromise. I can say I love Jesus, but I also love people. And I don't want to cause any problems. So I can just fit in. Any of y'all done that before? Absolutely you have. We could be grieved. We could be so sad and depressed that we'd want to go live on a hobbit farm somewhere in New Zealand, right? And get away from the world. And some of you are like, that's exactly where you're moving to, right, man? <laughs> you're like, you've already built the house. There's all types of ways to respond. But if I told you there was a biblical way to respond, would you believe me? There's a biblical way to deal with culture that's adversely against you. Now, what we've dealt with so far as we've studied the book of Acts, and listen, we're taking this a piece at a time, and we're going to take breaks. In fact, we're not going to finish the book of Acts until, until 2024, all right? We're not going to stay in it the whole time. We're going to take breaks. But we want to take our time because we really need to understand what the church is supposed to be like. But here's what we learned so far. Jesus died and rose from the dead. Y'all got that? And for 40 days, he walked with the early church, which is about 100 people. And he told them this, don't leave Jerusalem until you see, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. That's God's empowering. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? Because there's a lot of confusion and bad teaching about that. Y'all have experienced it before. Maybe you've turned on TV and went, whoa, that's not cool. Here's the deal. There's Father, Son, and what? Holy Spirit. Let's get this. God is three in one, meaning he operates as God the Father, as God the Son, Jesus Christ, who took the punishment you deserve, and as God the Spirit, who now resides in the life of the believer and empowers the church. You with me on that? It's all God. Now, this is an awful illustration because there's no way to illustrate the Trinity. There's no way to illustrate who God is, but this is my best effort. Y'all ready for this? I function as a father, 
I function as a brother and I function as a husband. I operate in three different ways, right? But I'm still Chip. Now, that doesn't totally explain God, and we're not going to try to this morning. That's a different subject for a different time. But you've got to understand that God's empowering presence is here. And if you know Jesus, he's in your life. That is something to be excited about. That is something to be empowered with. That is something to be satisfied in. Every answer, every hope, every joy, every part of peace that you're looking for, if you know Jesus, is in you think about that it's there it's our choice to listen to it or not you follow me so far so that's the first part of acts and then we have the early church they come together in acts chapter 2 verse 42 through 47 now i've told you this a million times i'll keep telling you this if you ever find the perfect church what don't join it you'll mess it up you're messed up there's no such thing as a perfect church We've got a lot of issues, but in 42 through 47 of Acts chapter 2, we have that first church, and it's as perfect as you can get. The church is born. God does amazing things to that local church. The gospel is spread. And then last week, <clears throat> we dealt with two characters called Ananias and Sapphira. You remember those guys? They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to the church. They passed away. They died in that moment. Now, some of you are like, whoa, I missed that message. Go back. It's online. We're not going to deal with it this morning. And then the church was experiencing miraculous growth, unity, and power. In fact, notice what happens in Acts chapter 5 here. Get this. And this is the third time the Bible talks about this in the book of Acts. In five chapters, they describe this first early church for the third time like this. Get this. Verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. So there was healings, there was miracles, there's all types of things of happening. Now listen, some of you are like, well, why doesn't this happen in the church today? Well, I will say it does. We need to be open to it, but very cautious in understanding, is this biblical? Is this of the Lord? But I want you to understand, these apostles knew Jesus. I want you to hear that. When you hear the term someone calling themselves an apostle today, number one, they're defining it differently, or number two, they don't understand what the biblical mandate is to be an apostle. You will never, and I will never be an apostle, because I never walk with Jesus personally. An apostle is someone who's given the authority to express the message of Jesus in a way by demonstrating that they know him because they did these signs and wonders. You follow me so far? They authenticated the fact that they were with Christ, and they're bringing God's word. That's it. Now, they're doing these signs and wonders. Now, does that still happen today? Yes, but we're not going to get into that. We don't have time. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, which was part of the temple there in Jerusalem. Now, listen, that first church didn't have a building, okay? In fact, as we've learned this morning, buildings are overrated, right? Right-hand section. Y'all with me over there? <laughs> you know, one of the greatest movements of the body of Christ was not done in a building. You know, revival happened in the early um, part of the United States under an oak tree at St. Simon's Island. Did y'all know that? You can go there today and stand there where John and Charles Wesley, the fathers of the Methodist movement, came to the United States and spread the gospel and had revival and had church under a tree. And thousands came to know Jesus. Isn't that cool? You can go to places here and currently yeah, our team is going to the Dominican Republic and guess what? Come in close. They don't have air conditioning. And they're near the equator. What does that mean? People like me are going to spontaneously combust. All right, that's what that means. 
is hot. <laughs> Here's the thing. You don't need a building. They're there in the temple. So keep going. With great power, the apostles continued to testify, and notice what they testified to, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. God was doing such great things that the church was taking care of each other like they're supposed to do, right? God was doing great things. Keep reading. From time to time, those who own land and I'm sorry, chapter 5. I totally messed that. I, my eyes, I need glasses. Here we go. Verse 14. Um, let's go back to verse 12 and get it all done. Here we go. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's calling. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Meaning, the people who didn't know Jesus weren't coming close. The people that knew Jesus were coming together, and they were attracting more and more people. Keep reading. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to the number daily. And as a result, the people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and their tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. What's happening here? Holy Spirit bomb goes out. God is doing great things. The church is forming. There's unity and there's great stuff happening. This is the third time they talk about it in the book of Acts. I mistakenly read part of that earlier, okay? Now, as the church thrives, things start to happen in culture. This church wasn't supposed to grow like this. When they killed Jesus, that was, excuse the pun, chopping the head off the snake. <laughs> Nothing else was going to happen. Yet the church grew. And we're not talking about, about a little bit. I'm talking about thousands and thousands of people coming to know Jesus. Now, what happens next is interesting. Because here's where we see a turning point in church history. The high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with what? Jealousy. Why? Well, there's a couple reasons. Sadducees were very greedy. And all these Jewish people who were given resources to the temple were coming to know Jesus and they stopped. Their crowds were growing. They were preaching the resurrection of Christ whom they had killed. And they're like, why is this happening? And so what they did was, but um, they arrested, in verse, in verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. Now this is interesting here. When they say public jail, there are different jails. The, the, the religious leaders in Jewish culture had their jail, and it wasn't a big deal. It was kind of like, you know, going on a vacation in, in some ways. But they put them in public jail in Jerusalem, which were run by the Roman people. And this was bad. You didn't escape from this. Roman guards were there, and if somebody escaped, they would get killed because... They were not supposed to let anyone escape. So you literally were putting your life in your hands if you tried to. You follow me so far? It was awful. It was dirty. It was a place where you went to die in some ways. But they took all these apostles, all 11 of them, actually 12 with Matthias, and they took them in and they put them in the public jail because they were preaching the gospel due to the jealousy of the Jewish people. You follow me so far? Now, here we go. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors to the jail and brought them out. And they said, go and stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people about this new life. Isn't that cool? Now, at daybreak, the end of the temple courts, as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. And when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called the Sanhedrin, <coughs> the full assembly of the elders of Israel together, and sent to the jail for the apostles. They had no idea these guys had escaped. 
But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them. So we went back and reported we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when, they, when we opened, no one was inside. On hearing the report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were, in, were at a loss, wondering what might happen. Then someone came and said, look, the men who were in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the gospel. At that, the captain went with his officers and they brought the apostles. And they did not have to use force because if they did, people were going to kill the captain and the guards. They brought them before the Sanhedrin. They brought them before the priest. They brought them before the religious leaders. And notice what happens. In verse 28, the priest said to him, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, meaning Jesus. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, let's stop here and time out. I would say this is cancel culture for Christians. Wouldn't you agree? Really think through it for a moment. It's one thing for you and I to be made fun of or say you shouldn't say that. It's another thing for you to be arrested. It's another thing for you to say, if you do this, we're going to put you in jail or kill you like, like we did Jesus. In fact, we're going to read in a few weeks about a guy named Stephen who was killed because of his faith. It was the first martyr other than Christ in the church. How do you respond to that when the whole world is against what you so so surely believe what do you do how do we navigate this you follow me so far so there are some things we need to deal with because as we walk through these things we have to think through this one big issue you may be a student in this room who may be made fun of if you follow Christ you may be a teacher in this room who may lose your job if you demonstrate Jesus at school. You may work in the workforce to where human resources may write you up. You may lose business if you follow Christ and do it publicly. Y'all follow me so far, right? It used to be where you could put a fish sticker on the back of your vehicle 30 years ago, 20 years ago, and everybody would hire you. Now, everybody pushes you away, right? Because you're a narrow-minded bigot. Right? How do, you, how do you handle that? Because the reality is, living for Christ in our culture, like it was 2,000 years ago, has very real consequences. You with me? How do you handle this? I think we take a lesson from the first church. And the first lesson we're going to take is simply this. When God creates an opportunity, you seize it. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? I want you to go backward a little bit. Because in chapter 5, it says they were in the prison. The angel of the Lord came. And what happened? He opened the door. And then he said, go to the temple courts and proclaim the gospel. And here's what's so interesting about living in our culture today. You can be Christ-like and when the opportunity comes to be Jesus to other people, you seize that opportunity. Just like these guys, when the doors opened, they walked through it. You're going to have doors open in your life to where you can be Jesus to someone. Are we praying for those doors to open? Are we praying for the empowerment to say something? Are we living out Jesus or are we just going ho-hum? You follow me so far? 
it may be adversely against you in your faith but when the opportunity and the doors open seize the opportunity you follow me are you seizing it are you having an opportunity to have a conversation with a coworker that's going through a difficult time are you standing for you believe in not standing what you believe in in a sense of defiance but standing for what you believe in in a sense of security and who jesus is you see the difference there seize the opportunity number two i want you to read down a little further with me starting in verse 29 peter and the other apostles replied after he said don't preach this we told you not to we must obey god rather than human beings wow well that wouldn't wouldn't that be a breath of fresh air in the local church or just in people in general See, here's the thing we got to get. I mean, let me tell you the story. In my the church I served at previously, there was a young man in there named Mark. Mark was a great guy. Ended up being our worship leader. Um, but he's also a school teacher. And he had had it ingrained in his head that if he talked about Jesus, lived out Jesus, had any hint of Christianity in his life, he was going to be fired. And he, had, he has seven girls. Him and his wife have seven girls. I'm going to say that one more time. He has seven daughters, okay? <laughs> he has to work to provide for them and to escape. You with me on that? <laughs> he was so petrified about losing his job that it caused, if he followed Jesus and lived out Christ in front of other people or mentioned it, that it caused great angst in his life. And there are times where we have to use discretion in how we communicate. But understand this. And here's your principle here. God is the foremost and final authority in your life. Period. If we believe this, if we really believe this Jesus stuff, God has to be the first, the foremost, and yet at the same time, final authority is he you know, it really comes down to who we're listening to right he's the first and final authority in our life we really have to ask ourselves who's in charge if he really has the whole world in his hands do we trust him in that do we trust him because really that's what it comes down to right and honestly the trust that we place in him is God, if I live out my faith and lose my job or get outcast or rejected, will you provide for my needs, for my peace, for strength, for friendships? Will you do that? Do I trust you enough in that? That's what it comes down to, right, guys? He's our, first, our foremost and final authority. Keep reading with me. I want you to notice what happens here. We're going to skip and we're going to go down to verse uh, 33. When they heard this, because we're going to go back and deal with those three verses. They're beautiful and we've got enough time to deal with it. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But notice a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. He said, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago... Theotis appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him he was killed and all of his followers dispersed and it all came to nothing after him another guy named Judas that also happened to him 
He too was killed and all his fathers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, what's going to happen? It will fail. Get that? He's speaking with great wisdom here. But then he goes on, but it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against who? God. And this persuaded the Sanhedrin, and they let him go after beating them. But here's the principle I want you to extract, extract from this. God's truth always outlasts man's ambitions. You've got to get that. We did a series on heaven a few months ago. Y'all remember that? This is our temporary home. I mean, do we really believe that? God's truth outlasts all this other stuff. Do we depend on that, count on that, live for that? So here's my word of encouragement, because we're looking for a place to put our security, right? Y'all ready for my encouragement? Here you go. This is the best I can give you. Chill. <laughs> it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Chill. God's going to take care of this. Rest in that. Last principle we're going to deal with this morning. After all this has happened, get this. It said his speech in verse 40 persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. And notice this, the apostles left the Sanhedrin. How did they respond to this? Rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, meaning Jesus. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Here's your principle. Normalize adversity. Normalize it. Listen, they killed our Savior. What makes you think you're better? Normalize it. Of course people are going to push back. Of course culture is going to cancel you. Why? Because we're not of this world. We're living on a different level, not a different level, but a different plane. We're living heaven bound because of Christ and what he's done. Normalize the adversity. Normalize that things are going to be different. Normalize, I mean, it's just normal. That doesn't mean you got to fall into that. You're abnormal. I'm abnormal. Normalize adversity. So, how do, we, how do we respond to the fact that this is real? We could lose a job. We could be sued. We could be rejected. We could be outcast. How do we deal with this? A couple things here. I want to go back to Acts chapter 29, 5, verse 29. Peter looked at him and said, we must first obey God rather than humans. And then he goes on to say three very important things. Really, really look at this with me. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. So, out of your best efforts to quench this, you failed. Christ overcame death, and he rose from the dead. And then he goes on to say, and then after he died, God exalted him. We saw it. He ascended to the throne. God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior. Why? So that, get this, so that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And that includes us who aren't Jewish. So you get that. After Christ was raised, God exalted him so that you can be forgiven. That's good stuff. And then he goes on to say, and we're witnesses of these things. 
And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Meaning we're empowered by something greater here. So let's just boil this down to three things. God rose Jesus. God brought Jesus back from the dead. So have confidence in God's abilities. Get that? Have confidence in God's abilities. If Christ is alive, have confidence that he's going to take care of us peons. Y'all with me on that? Have confidence. Number two. Have certainty in God's authority to identify you as one of his kids. Your identity is not in what you do, it's in whose you are. It says he's going to bring you forgiveness. He is the prince. He reigns over it, and he's the savior of your life. Have certainty in your identity. Number three, testify to the calling that you have and the calling that you were given. Testify to truth. Because we obey God rather than men. You with me on that? So, here's the question I ask. I want to finish with one story and get out of here. What is he calling you to do? What is he calling you to obey? You've got something. I've got something, right? There's something some of y'all been putting off for generations, for decades, for years. He's calling you maybe to take a step of faith, maybe to follow Christ for the first time, maybe to do something with your life as glorifying to God. Some of you are called into ministry full time, and you need to take that step. But what is he calling you to do? It could be as simple as serving the kids' ministry. It could be as simple as, or as complex as, as going overseas and serving in some foreign mission field the rest of your life. But what is he calling you to do? One's not better than the other, but what is he calling you to do? Where do you need to obey him? that you haven't yet I want to I want to end with this because I thought this was pertinent to to what this is about because the reality is it's it's tough to live out your faith in the current cultural climate agreed and it's tough to not follow through with following Jesus culturally speaking and the things around us agreed everybody say yes It's, it's hard Two weeks ago, <clears throat> my family and I, um, my son graduated high school. We took, his, we took a trip to celebrate that. We went to the Grand Canyon. Never been to the Grand Canyon. Walk there. Go. It is surreal. And um, at 5.15 in the morning, really at 4.45 in the morning, the sun begins to rise at the Grand Canyon. And because I'm married to some, a very creative person and I have a very creative child, the thing they want to do is watch the sunrise. Now at 5 o'clock in the morning, the thing I want to do is what? Sleep. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so we're in this little hotel room. We're all crammed into one little room together, and I'm actually sleeping on. You ever seen those little pull-out cots that they give to you as roll-away beds? That's what I'm sleeping on because I, I sleep loudly. And, and so about 4.45 in the morning, I feel this. And I'm, I'm not snoring. No, no, no. Let's go watch the sunrise. Let's not. Why don't you go and tell me how it goes? If it doesn't rise, come back. <laughs> Five minutes later, you need to watch the sunrise. Now, I've been married happily for 23 years. And when I hear the phrase, you need to do something, that means you better get up. Y'all, y- y- husbands, you know what I mean, right? So I get up. And I go to the Grand Canyon, and I sit on the edge. Literally, it's a cliff. 
And this is probably the dumber thing I've ever done before because I can hardly see. You know what I mean? It's just like I'm still wiping the sleep out of my eyes, trying to look and enjoy this beautiful sunrise. And I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to pray, God, show me something this morning. And he did. In front of me, there was a little bitty bush. I think it was a juniper tree. And you got to understand, the soil there is rocky and it's dry. Nothing should grow there. And it's barely hanging on to the side of the canyon. Really, gravity's against it. It's pulling its da- it down. There's, its roots are barely stuck into the side of this canyon. And as the sun rose over the cliff in front of us on the canyon, let's throw, show this picture here. I, took, I, I don't take pictures, but I took a picture of this. This is a big deal. There was a little bloom on the side of this thing. And it hit me. Regardless of where you're planted in life, how hard it is, how difficult your past has been, or how adverse the culture is, you bloom where you're planted. You with me? You bloom where you're planted. It doesn't, you don't have to go overseas and serve in missions for the rest of your life. You are a missionary. Why? Because you know Jesus. Bloom where you're planted. If you're a dad, bloom to your kids and show them what it means that it is manly and godly to follow Christ. Be that leader. If you're a student, bloom where you're planted. It is difficult being in school today, harder than it's ever been. But you know what? For a world that appreciates diversity and being different, you be different. This will not last forever. You bloom where you're planted in your home when there's conflict there and there's no way you could ever forgive. You forgive anyway. You bloom where you're planted in the culture that you're in regardless if it cancels you or not. Regardless of what your soil is like, you can bloom. Amen? Guys, today, some of you need to know Jesus. You need to take that step of obedience. And so if you need Christ this morning, I want to give you two options to do that. One, on the Connect card you're given, there's several boxes that says, Today I need Christ, or I need to be baptized. Check those boxes, and as you exit out, either turn into the guest services or slide it in the offering box next to those double doors. Number two, text in the phrase, At home or here, I need Jesus. That's going to come straight to my email address. I will call you tomorrow. We'll have a conversation of what it means to have security and hope. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for peace. We thank you for hope. We thank you for giving us life. And so, Christ, as we seek to live for you, regardless of what we're dealing with and where we're at, allow us to bloom. Allow us to demonstrate Jesus and to feel the fullness of what it means to know Christ. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for hope. And allow us to be the light of the gospel and bloom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.